science story, huh? Our first story this week is from Sebastian Gaston Alvarado, who was recorded in October 2016 at the Rickshaw Stop in San Francisco, California, for our show with the Bay Area Science Festival. All right. So there are many noble ways to get into science. Um, there are a lot of people who find themselves wanting to cure a disease that affects a loved one. There are some people who find themselves studying an animal that they've always looked at in their backyard their entire life. And of course, there are those of us who just have the aptitude to really do anything and just to jump into any field and do science. Uh, I don't think I've ever fit into any one of those categories because the actual moment that I decided to do science, I was probably six, seven years old. I had broken into my older brother's closet and I spent the afternoon reading his comic books, the first 50 issues of Wolverine. Yeah, it was pretty exciting. Um, it was really, really cool for a little kid that's six, seven years old, but also really violent, too. And uh, my parents weren't really approving at first, but within a short time, I had my own comic book collection. I had trading cards. I had action figures. And uh, I woke up every Saturday morning to watch uh, The Uncanny X-Men and The Amazing Spider-Man, The Avengers. And uh, part of me really felt that I either had to become a superhero or I had to at least learn how to make them. <laughs> so when I kind of went to the checklist, I mean, a radioactive spider bite didn't really make much sense to me. Uh, a mythical hammer didn't make sense either. But when it came to the Uncanny X-Men um, and the groundwork that was laid out by you know, Jack Kirby and Stan Lee, I found something that made a lot of sense to me. Um, for those of you who don't know about the X-Men, or X-Women, X-People, um, they all have their powers when they're born as mutants. And when they become teenagers uh, and they hit puberty or some sort of emotional trauma, during puberty, um, their X-gene activates itself, and their superpowers become known to the world around them. And that just made sense to me, right? Uh, we have genes, they had genes, and um, as a six, seven-year-old, it made enough sense to just go into genetics and to learn biology. Fast forward about a decade or so into the future, I found myself doing my undergraduate degree, majoring in biology, learning about molecular biology, and figuring out what was going to be the next step. Uh, what was I going to do next? And I heard on the radio a scientist by the name of Moshe Sif talking about a recent study that he had just published. Um, him, in a collaboration with another group at McGill, they had discovered that they could explain the behavior of an animal by a molecular switch that would turn on and off in the brain. And it was, it was a switch to a specific gene. And to me, that started to kind of resonate with how I felt as a kid and what I thought about the X-Men. And I figured, why not reach out to Moshe and see if there was an opportunity to work with him? So I gave him a phone call. He picked up and he said, why don't you come into my office in about a week or so? And I was pretty excited. Um, I 
about a week later, I found myself driving to Montreal. I lived in Ottawa and I came up to his office and I sat down with him and uh, he was a little surprised at first. I think he didn't realize that we actually had a meeting that day. And uh, I actually found out that I had two strokes of incredible luck because he almost never answers his phone either. Um, so we sat down and I went into my spiel and about two or three minutes into the spiel, he just cuts me off and he says, we're all pretty smart here. The prize only goes to those who are willing to work the hardest. Can you work the hardest? I was a bit intimidated and really there's only one right answer to that question. And it was, yes, I guess I could. And so he said he would take me as a graduate student in his lab. So this molecular switch that he studied, it was called DNA methylation. And what it is, it's this, I guess you could consider it this chemical paint that finds itself onto specific genes in your biology and the biology of many other animals. And uh, it can act like an on and off switch, like a light switch. And I guess our group was a really mixed bunch. Um, I guess the best way to illustrate the entire field, at least how I'm going to attempt to right now, is that if you were to think about the exact moment that you were conceived, hopefully not with all the details, um, you were a single cell embryo um, with a fixed set of genes. And today, sitting here, you are probably some 37 trillion cells. And each of these cells have very different functions and different experiences. And the cells in your eyes obviously behave very differently than the cells in your brain. Um, and we were interested in how this specific molecular switch called DNA methylation could create patterns that allowed tissue to do what it does. Um, so our mixed group studied aggression, studied depression, and cancer as well. And my project fell within the realm of looking at cancer. Three years later, I found myself standing in my lab, probably late at night, looking at a dish filled with cells and pink liquid on it. And I felt really detached from the work that I was doing. I felt that it was very pointless. I was in a bit of a rut. Because these cells, who knows, maybe 50 years ago, were taken out of a tumor, um, cultured in pink liquid that definitely doesn't represent what's inside of you or what was even inside the patient that it was taken from. And cultured to the point that it was immortalized. And most of the cells in your body aren't immortalized. And after being immortalized, they were frozen in a freezer at minus 80 degrees Celsius. And you definitely wouldn't survive that, and the patient and the tumor just wouldn't. And after being in that freezer for who knows how many years, it was thawed, or it was sold to us in our lab, thawed and given to me, and I cultured these cells for three more years, where I just stood there looking at them um, and really thinking I was going nowhere. Um, I didn't think I was contributing to the scientific community. I didn't think I was getting close to a cure for cancer. And I definitely wasn't finding out a way to find superhuman healing. Um, so it was at that point I decided to take on a few side projects, uh, mostly against the wishes of Moshe, but that's OK. Looking back now, that's just fine. Um, uh, I turned to the one person I could only really turn to at that point, and the person who I still turn to to this day, my wife, or my girlfriend at the time, now wife, uh, she was, after all, going through a lot of the same things that I was going through. She was doing her PhD at McGill, and she had suggested many great projects that we carried out. We even collaborated together. And one day, um, she said, I should work with Ahab Abuhif, who is a biologist at McGill, who studies ants. And I just thought to myself, 
why would I want to study ants? And she had actually done her master's in the Department of Biology. So she was very familiar with her work. And she said to me that when you look at a colony, you have a queen who's the mother of a few million different individuals. And those few million different individuals actually have a lot of shared genetics. In fact, if you were to really look at that, those genetics, you would see something between, let's say, a fraternal twin and an identical twin. So they're really, really similar. And despite all those similarities, they can look incredibly different. Um, you can have workers that go out and look for food and bury, um, take care of the young. And you had these soldiers with giant mandibles. And of course, you had queens, which actually got to lay eggs and reproduce, unlike the other individuals. And this was starting to really look familiar to those single cell embryo and 37 trillion cells that I kind of mentioned to you earlier, because those 37 trillion cells all have the exact same genes, yet they have so many different functions. And what ant people call studying the species, uh, they call it the superorganism. That is, you know, the collective behavior of many millions of individuals uh, to the point where this single colony really acts like a single superorganism. So it seemed like a really interesting model to ask questions related to my field, studying DNA methylation. And uh, I introduced myself to Ahab. Um, he got me working with one of his graduate students named Rajim, and we decided to look for the most obvious difference. We looked at the differences between the smallest individuals in a colony and the largest individuals in a colony, the workers and the soldiers. So we picked up these larvae, we put them in a tube, we ground them up, and we extracted DNA, and then we measured DNA methylation. And we actually started finding some really cool differences. Um, we found that the workers were more methylated and the soldiers were less methylated. And we figured, well, if one is more and the other is less, maybe we could use drugs to manipulate this equilibrium. So what we did is we took these larvae, we put them onto a drop of drug uh, that would either increase methylation or decrease it, and we put a little tissue paper on top, and this tissue paper would kind of create this capillary force that would suck up the liquid and bathe these larvae. Um, and we waited uh, two or three weeks. Um, at the end of those two or three weeks, we saw these ants emerge from their little cocoons, and it turned out that they became smaller and bigger depending on our drug treatment. So we were shrinking the ants and enlarging them, which is pretty cool. In fact, the smaller ants were even tinier than exist in the colony we were picking the larvae from. So they were aberrant biology. They were so tiny that you can't even find them in the wild. That was pretty exciting. Um, <laughs> The first thing we did was obviously repeat this experiment with as many animals as we could and wait two more weeks. In those two weeks, I found myself coming into my lab, introduced, as I said, people who work with cancer, people who work with aggression and depression, and just walking up to them and saying, guess what? I'm Ant-Man. And they, like many other times, just kind of rolled their eyes and continued doing what they were doing um, because they didn't really know what was going on through my head at that time. And I'm going to tell you, true believers, what was going through my head at that time. Um, there are many superheroes that can shrink and enlarge themselves, but most notably there's Ant-Man or Hank Pym, uh, Scott Lang, or whoever took the mantle. And they had the secret power of being able to shrink and enlarge themselves by using these PIM particles that could shrink the distance between atoms, making them smaller or increasing that distance and making them bigger. And of course, it didn't make sense back then, and it doesn't make sense today. But 
today, at that point, I was looking at these ants crawling directly in front of me, and they were larger and they were smaller. Um, and this was really amazing. In fact, so amazing, I said to myself, uh, it was around 2011, the Ant-Man movie was in pre-production, and I said, there's one thing I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure that this science gets into that movie no matter what. <laughs> in fact, I wish I could tell you a story in which it did. Unfortunately, um, the executive producer at Marvel Entertainment, Kevin Feige, has a very good personal assistant who screens these emails and phone calls. And I actually did get to talk to her a few times. And, uh, you know, I think she was just doing her job, but she definitely stopped me. And looking back now, I guess I may have been going about it the wrong way. Um, after all, I could imagine her inbox being filled with these multiple emails with like 15, 20 megabyte attachments of photos of just ants. And the subject line just reading, I am Ant-Man, all caps, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, one, one, exclamation mark, one, one, exclamation mark. So I really don't have any hard feelings, but I, I did really thought that I was going somewhere. And I, for the first time in a long time, I really found myself getting back in touch with real motivations about why I went into science. So I found myself regrouping, coming back to the lab. Also, I know some of you are probably thinking he had these giant fist-sized ants crawling all over his body. The reality is, is that even when you shrink and enlarge ants, they are still ants. <laughs> so they were still pretty tiny, but I mean, as far as our measurements went, we knew we were creating a difference. In fact, there may have been this difference that we were creating between the largest and the smallest individual, but within this specific species, there was a tremendous amount of natural variation. That means between the largest and the smallest, between black and white, there were many shades of gray, uh, a lot of in-between sizes of ants. And when we started looking for specific genes and how DNA methylation painted itself onto individual genes, we found that we could really explain natural variation and treat this light switch, this on and off switch of a gene, less like an on and off switch, but more like a dimmer switch. And this was actually a first. Um, nobody had really seen it that way. And I found myself kind of discovering this kind of by accident because I chose to look at ants. And I know I couldn't have ever been able to do this with cells in a dish with pink liquid on them. And uh, I know I probably wouldn't have been able to do it with lab mice either. It would have been too difficult, too expensive. And I probably wouldn't be able to do it with humans either for obvious reasons. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> But it did really open my eyes. I really found myself reevaluating the way I look at science because sometimes the best questions are asked to animals out in the wild reacting and to their real environment in natural ways. And it's really changed the way I do my projects going forward. In fact, near the end of my PhD, I also decided to look at DNA methylation at a in a hibernating ground squirrel and to look at how their metabolism changes as they go into these winter seasons and below freezing temperatures. Right now I'm at Stanford and I'm studying how an African cichlid fish changes its behaviors from a subordinate male to a dominant male and how they change colors in between. And I'm still working with ants as well. But if there's one thing that I kind of learned from all of this is that to not really forget your motivations for doing the things you do and why you do science. Because even down the road into the future and into the past, a lot of people necessarily don't take you seriously if you're a grown man talking about superheroes. But you know that squirrel that I was telling you about? Well, I don't just see a squirrel. I, I see 
Stephen Rogers as Captain America at the bottom of the Atlantic, freezing in ice and figuring out how he's gonna depress his metabolism to survive those freezing waters. That social cichlid fish that I study and the transitions between a subordinate male to a dominant male, uh, I see Bruce Banner turning green and into the Incredible Hulk. And ants, like I said, I'm still working with ants, um, except instead of shrinking them and enlarging them, I'm figuring out ways to control their behavior. And I'm doing it without a silly looking helmet as well. In fact, down the road, I've even had other opportunities pop up where I've actually been able to consult for Marvel and to figure out some of the science behind their superheroes for a museum exhibit that was in New York, and now I think it's in Vegas. But there is one last part of the story I'd like to share with you. Um, and that was, once this paper finally got published about the ants, I, I, I said to myself, I should at least try one last time to get through to Kevin Feige, this executive producer at Marvel. And uh, at the very least, to get to his personal assistant who was blocking all my calls so that she could see that I was actually a real scientist and I was doing real work. Um, but the funny thing is, is I actually got a reply. And I'm going to read it for you right now. Oh, oh it's not done yet. <laughs> um, astonishing stuff, Sebastian. Congrats on the paper. It's really impressive. And I love the idea that Marvel inspired you as much as that it's inspired me. The difference is, you will be changing the world. Well done, and thanks so much for sending me the link. Thank you. That was Sebastian Gaston Alvarado. Sebastian is currently an AP Giannini Fellow at Stanford University, where he studies how social environment can shape the way genes change behavior in a fish. He's also co-founder of Thwack, a science consulting firm for the entertainment sector. As a consultant, he has rationalized the science behind Captain America's super soldier serum and the reversible nature of the Incredible Hulk's transformations. Our second story today is from Danny Artis. It was recorded in November 2016 at the Crane Theater as part of the Gotham Storytelling Festival. So my my parents were very much of the be-whatever-you-want-to-be school of parenting. And by the time I got to middle school, I had been a jazz dancer and a Boy Scout and a witch and a pilgrim and a soccer player and a figure skater and a mutant superhero. And only half of those were Halloween costumes. Um, and if you asked me as a kid what I wanted to be when I grew up, uh, my answer was always famous. <laughs> but I didn't figure out what I wanted to be famous for doing or for being until third grade. And I called a family meeting and I sat my parents down. And family meeting um, was, it wasn't necessarily a surprise to my parents that I would call a family meeting. I had called one not too long prior to present my case to my mom and dad why they needed to have a little brother or sister for me. And I had charts and I had graphs and I had all their objections responded to. Um, it did not work. Um, but this was now the second family meeting that I had called, and um, my parents had never called a family meeting, <laughs> just eight-year-old me. And, and so I sat them down, and you know, I, was, I was going to need their support and their love and some financial resources beyond my $2 weekly allowance um, to fulfill this dream that I had discovered. And so I told them, Mom, Dad, 
I want to be, no, I'm going to be a plant. (laughs) And my parents did not shoot me down. They did have some questions, however. Um, They wanted to know where I had gotten this idea, and they wanted to know how I was going to execute it. Um, And I had answers to both. Um, Because we had just read a book in Miss Ihara's class called Top Secret, in which the main character, a little boy named Alan, decided that for his science fair project, he was going to turn himself into a plant. And he did some research, and he found out, and I'm, I'm going to, because this is sort of a science-minded crowd, I'm going to get really technical with you here, and I know you can follow along. He found out that blood and chlorophyll are actually pretty similar. And... The only real difference between them is that chlorophyll is more magnesium-based and blood is more iron-based. That's it. And so, so he devised this sort of like diet of magnesium-rich foods that would override the iron in his system and turn him into a photosynthesizer and he would be a plant. And after a few tweaks, he found a formula that worked and his skin turned green and he stopped wanting to sleep, he wanted to be out in the sun, and if he stood too long in one place, his feet would grow roots into the ground. And so clearly, I wanted to do that too. And, and my parents were, were, were not fully on board because they were going to be losing their human son. Um, but after showing them the formula, which was very conveniently reprinted in the book, they were reluctantly on board. Now, it made me think a little bit of um, the ending of The Little Mermaid, but in reverse. Like, do you remember Ariel had a a spell that she was a human for three days, and in that time she made Prince Eric fall in love with her. Sorry if you haven't seen it. I'm spoiling it for you. Um, And and then the spell was over, and she was a mermaid again, but her father, seeing how much in love she was with Prince Eric, used his magic trident to turn her into a human being for good so that she could marry Prince Eric. And even at five years old few years earlier, I remember thinking that it was actually a really sad ending because it meant that she could never see her family again and she would never be able to swim with Sebastian and flounder again. But this was different because because this was not for some stupid reason like love. (laughs) This was for exploration and discovery and for fame. (laughs) Because in the book, the president of the United States had contacted this little boy and wanted to know more about this experiment he had done that had worked. And so, of course, the president was going to reach out to me. And I figured, you know, as much as I knew that this book was fiction, there were clearly some very factual elements going on in it. And so I knew that the reality would be a little bit different because in addition to the president, of course, I was going to get on TV. And I figured a talk show would make the most sense and probably not Jay Leno because that was past my bedtime, but like more of a Barbara Walter situation, which also worked out better because if you're on TV but none of your friends see it, were you really on TV? Um, and so she was going to sit me down and it would be me and the president and she'd be talking like about what this could mean for world hunger and about the ex- like furthering the, co- you know, the balance between humanity and plant life. And, and the president would say, well, and then Barbara Walters would say like, let Danny speak. And then I would answer... And then she would surprise me with Miss Ihara coming out, and Miss Ihara would announce that I not only got an A on my science project, of course, but that also I had automatic A's for the rest of the year on all my tests and all my homework, and I didn't have to do any ever again. Now, what was key to this plan was urgency, because I didn't know who else in my class might be trying to beat me to the punch, and there was no way that I was going to get on the front page of the paper and meet the president, Barbara Walters, if I was literally the second banana. And so... I told my mom that I needed 
I told my mom that I needed to go to the grocery store right away to get these ingredients. So we went. And the things that I was going to need for this, this it, was, it was like a shake. It was, it was all mixed together. I was going to need um, beans, nuts, and grains. And so we got a can of refried beans, and we already had a jar of peanut butter. And for the grains, we got Cocoa Puffs, because that's pretty close. Um, we were also going to need salt water, which I could make. I'm a crafty sort. Um, and then a final key ingredient that we got an entire tub of just to be sure and so when we got back to my house i immediately went to the blender and in went the salt water that i made the cocoa puffs the peanut butter the refried beans and i kind of figured the sweetness of the cocoa puffs and the peanut butter would balance out the final ingredient which was raw chicken liver (laughs) yeah i had never eaten liver before um much less smelled it and so i put i took a little piece and I dropped it in the, the blender. And my mom, who had come around to my plan and was fully on board, said, why don't you put a little more in, Danny? <laughs> so I put another piece in. And she was like, we want to be sure this is going to work. How about a little more? So we just put the whole tub of gooey chicken organs into the blender and mixed it all up. And when it was liquefied altogether, it looked a lot like a chocolate milkshake, but just like a little bit grayer. And, and I had a whole pitcher full. And so I, I got a glass, not one of my juice glasses, one of my mommy and daddy's grown-up glasses, and I, I poured it full. And that was when the smell really like, hit me. And I don't, I don't want to get graphic here. I, I've already talked about liver. I don't want to like overdo this, but it smelled worse than the time I had to get my retainer out of the trash can in the cafeteria. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that bad. And so I knew that I could not get down that whole glass But I was a thinker, and so I thought, my dad's espresso cup. Because maybe a lot of servings of just a little bit of my liver shake wouldn't be so bad. (laughs) So I I filled my dad's espresso cup, and I took a sip. It was not good. It was not good, like in a way that was worse than my grandma's carrot raisin salad was not good. But I knew that I had to drink the whole thing to become a plant. So I went for the second sip. And it it just really, we didn't want to go down. And so I didn't throw up or anything, but I spit it out. I spit it out. I couldn't do it. I I couldn't get it down. There was no way I was going to get a whole pitcher down. And I poured it down the drain. And along with my gray chocolate liver milkshake, I watched my dreams and hopes dissolve down the drain. And I didn't become a plant. <laughs> I, I didn't become famous. I didn't get to go on Barbara Walters. I didn't get an automatic A in science. In the long run, I did become a person whose parents had allowed him to live in a world of what could be rather than what was. And in the short run, uh, meaning fourth grade, the next year, I became a vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> That was Danny Artis. Danny is a New York-based storyteller who has won multiple Moth Story Slams and performed at QED, UCB, The Magnet Theater, and Ripley's Believe It or Not. If you enjoyed today's stories or are a fan of the podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. If you donate $10 or more, we'll list your name in our show programs across the country, and you'll help us keep bringing these stories out to the whole world. 
Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Company Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is produced by me, Liz Neely, Aaron Barker, Ari Daniel, Christine Gentry, Shane Hanlon, Rosie Waldron, Cassie Soliday, and Nissa Greenberg, with help from Farah Ahmad, Ellie Chen, and Skylar Bear. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders, and the theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the Rickshaw Stop and the Crane Theater for hosting these shows, and to my parents for never letting me drink a liver smoothie. Thanks for listening. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.